All right, good morning. If you haven't already, please go ahead, grab a seat. Thank you guys so much for coming out this morning. Welcome to Cross Point Winter Park on the Sunday after Christmas. Thank you guys so much for being here. My name's Eric. If we've never got the chance to meet before, I'm one of the staff members here at Cross Point. Kids, welcome to our service. Grateful to have you here with us. Every uh, month that has five Sundays in it, on the fifth Sunday here at Cross Point, we have a family worship service uh, where we bring our elementary age kids into the gym for us with the whole worship service. And I know parents, this can add a certain level of chaos and crayons to your Sunday morning experience, but we really think that something special happens in the discipleship of your kids when we gather the whole family together here in this place where as Natalie just said, we praise God, we hear his word, and we receive his love in a way that is unique to anything else in the experience and life of a Christian. And so because of that, we want to share this really special moment with our kids to help them grow in their knowledge and experience more and more of how much they are loved by God through Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning's passage comes from Isaiah 65. You got a Bible? Please go ahead, open up to Isaiah 65 in the Old Testament. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some paperback ones on those back tables there. We've got the page number for that in the corner in a moment. Please go ahead. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. Isaiah 65 is where we're going to be looking today. And we're wrapping up a season this morning that Christians uh, for centuries have viewed as a time to look forward to the second coming of Christ in light of his first coming. And this morning's passage gives us one of the most vivid pictures in all of the Bible of what the future will be and the hope that is in it for me and you. So Isaiah 65 is where we're going to be this morning. Read with me starting in verse 17. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 17, he says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its peoples to be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruits. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones, who will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I want you to imagine for a moment here that someone's given you a vision of what your life is going to look like 
30 years from now? Now, we've probably got some questions immediately about the details all right, of that. Okay, was I successful? Um, did I finally get married? Were my kids okay? Do I still have hair? Because uh, right now I'm really not trending in a good direction with that category. And depending on what you see, it could either fill you with this great sense of hope and confidence, we think, look what I become, or this sense of bitterness and despair at what your life really turned out to be in the end. Either way, it would completely change the way you live right now. Now, why is that? Well, Andrew Del Banco, who's a professor at Columbia University, he's a cultural critic, essentially says that human beings can't make sense of their lives without seeing it in the context of some story. That as he puts it, uh, we must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we're to keep at bay the dim back of the mind suspicion that we are simply adrift in an absurd world. You and me are forward-oriented people. We can't make sense of our lives without seeing it in the context of a story that's leading somewhere. So where would you imagine yourself in 30 years? Where's your story leading to? Because wherever you imagine your story leading to, that is what gives you the sense of hope that you have right now, that as Del Banco says, we're not just simply adrift in this absurd world, but our story is moving somewhere to something greater. So what's your vision of the future? And can the hope it give you sustain everything that life's going to throw at you? This, in a lot of ways, is the question that the people Isaiah is prophesying to in this book need to be asking themselves. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century BC, right at a time when God's people were about to be attacked, ripped out of their country, sent into exile in a foreign land, all while another country came in, pillaged and destroyed their home, all because of their repeated generations and generations of sin. And in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, the last few chapters, Isaiah is actually looking into the future to the Israelites who are going to be returning to that exile, back to their home that's been completely destroyed, where they don't have a king, they don't have an army, they don't even have a country anymore, and he gives them picture of the ultimate future, of the end of time, to give them a sense of hope in the rubble that has become their lives. And it's the same vision that he is giving to you and me today. This is the future that awaits every Christian at the end of time, and Isaiah is giving this picture to us too this morning to give us a sense of hope that we need today. And to really understand and see the full picture of this future that Isaiah is describing here, there's three pictures in it we need to see. We need to see the world of the future, the life of the future, and the gift of the future. All right, so the world, the life, and the gift. So what will the future look like? That's the question we all want to know, right? 
And to grasp that a little bit more, we need to first see the world of the future that Isaiah is describing. And we see in these first few verses that the world of the future will be a world of total renewal, where the two biggest threats in your life right now are completely gone. First, there's no death in this world of the future. Look down with me at verse 20. Isaiah says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere child. And now these verses confuse people a little bit because it seems to be describing that there will be death in the world to come. But we can't read these verses that literally here, right? Isaiah is using metaphors and imagery from his time to describe this vision that he's been given of the world of the future, all right? This is to be read as poetry, not this exact blueprint of what's gonna happen, okay? And what Isaiah is basically saying is that over the whole span of life, from infancy to old age, death will be completely gone. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine for a moment a world where you don't have to fear your son or your daughter, your mom or your dad ever dying? Where you don't have to worry about going to the doctor, getting a diagnosis that you know you're not going to be able to beat? And Isaiah tells us how that can be right afterwards, because in this world of the future, sin will be gone too. Now, at the end of verse 20, there's a slight translation discrepancy here. So the NIV translation that I'm reading from says, the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. But I think actually the ESV translation, which our paperback Bibles use, I think it captures better the Hebrew word that's being used here when it says, not the one who fails to reach 100, but the sinner, 100 years old, will be accursed. And what Isaiah is saying in this poetic image here is that in this world of the future, even if the presence of sin, which is the rejection and rebellion against the good way that God created you and I to live, even if some presence of sin managed to fly under the radar for over a century, God's justice would still find it and wipe it out. I mean, imagine a world where you don't have to lock your doors at night, where you don't have to worry about what's happening to your kids when they're out of your sight. No more death, no more sin. I mean, this sounds like I'm describing a completely different world, and yet the crazy thing is, the world of the future Isaiah is describing is where you and I sit right now. Now, how can that be? Well, look up at the beginning, verse 17. God says through Isaiah, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And that word new there, it's not meaning new in the sense of time or origin. It's meaning new in the sense of quality. A better way to think of it would be renewed. In other words, taking something, keeping the original substance of it the same, but transforming it into something more beautiful than it ever once was before. And what Isaiah is saying here is that the world of the future will be a completely renewed world. In other words, at the end of time, 
God isn't gonna destroy this world and replace it with this new one that then Christians get to kind of escape to into some other spiritual realm. And he's not even gonna then come and restore this original good creation to what it once was before. No, God is going to renew this world into something more beautiful than it ever once was. That at the end of time, if you're a Christian, you don't go up to heaven, heaven comes down to you. And when heaven comes down, its posture will be love and it will cleanse nature, culture, and people, taking the original substance of this world and transforming it into a masterpiece. This is the first picture of the future, a renewed world. And it's this vision of a renewed world that's incredibly important for shaping the hope of both the Israelites who are going to be coming back from the exile, but also of you and me here today. You see, what Isaiah is showing us is that our hope is to be built on the expectation of renewal, not escape. You see, I think a lot of times we can have this misplaced hope of escape in our lives. Here's what I mean by that. When we bump up against something difficult, when we're experiencing some sort of challenge emotionally, physically, spiritually, we think, what I need right now is to escape whatever is going on. I just need to get out of this. I just need to transcend anything difficult, anything painful in my life, and then once I do, everything will be better. And we can do it in small ways. Having a bad year, think, I just need a vacation. Having a bad day, think, I just need a three-hour Hulu binge. Talk to me afterwards. I've got so many shows to share with you. But we can also do it in some big ways, too. Um, a few years back, when Becca and I were living up in Boston, I befriended a man. He wasn't an American man. He was Indian, came from a traditional Hindu household, was really smart, moved to America, met an American woman. They got married. Uh, the relationship struggled the whole time. After five years, she left him, moved back to the Midwest where she was from, and it completely crushed this guy. And you could see it in his life. He was trying to do everything he could to escape the pain that this divorce had given him. So he poured himself into his academic career, but that didn't really work. So then he tried pouring himself into the entrepreneurial world, but that really wasn't working ever. And every time him and I talked about something serious, what I heard coming from him was, how do I make the pain stop? Finally, one day, we were talking on the street outside my office, and I said to him, here's the thing. You can try as much as you want to try to escape the pain of your wife leaving you. You can try to pour yourself into all these different things to try to transcend the hurt that this divorce has caused you, but it's never going to work. What you need is something outside of you, something bigger than you, to come down into the pain and renew what feels dead inside of you. And you might say to me, hey man, look, apples to apples. Like, as long as I'm not feeling this way anymore, I don't really care how it happens, but I am telling you, there is something profoundly different about trying to escape the pain of your story and about God coming down into it and renewing your story. So what are you running from today? What are you trying to escape? 
You see, what my friend needed to see, what I need to see, what you and me need to see, is the hope of the future that Isaiah is giving to these Israelites who are going to return from the exile because we see in it that the hope of Christianity isn't one of escape. It's not that we get, at the end of time, raptured out of this painful life into some distant spiritual bliss. It's that God comes down, heaven comes down in love and cleanses nature and cultures and people and renews this world into something more beautiful than it ever once was. A renewed world. So that's what the future will look like. But what will the future feel like? And to get a sense of that, we need to see the life of the future Isaiah is describing here. And what we see in, is that the biblical future is not just this renewed world, but it's a flourishing life. First, flourishing spiritually. Read with me in verse 21. He says, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. And it sounds like a kind of confusing verse here. What's happening in this verse is we've got this parallel thought that Isaiah is using to draw us back to a verse in the book of Deuteronomy. So at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is listing out this series of blessings on people who are in a right relationship with God and curses on people who aren't. And one of the curses of people who aren't right with God, Moses says, is that they'll build houses, somebody else is going to live in it. They'll plant a vineyard, but somebody else will eat from it. But here in the renewed world, we have a complete reversal of that. The people build houses and live in them. They plant vineyards and they eat the fruit of it. And what Isaiah is doing, in other words, is he's describing a life in the new, renewed world that is completely right, completely whole with God, from the home to the vineyard. In other words, meaning everything over every sphere, every part of your life is completely spiritually flourishing. I mean, imagine for a second spiritually, never having to feel guilt or fear again, Imagine never having to question where God is in the midst of something difficult in life. And it's this spiritual flourishing that then is going to radiate out into relational flourishing with each other. If you look down even further in verse 25, Isaiah says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, meaning that in the future, old relational strife will be gone, fears will be removed. And the lion will eat straw like an ox, which is a poetic way of saying this will all be possible because our natures will be changed. For there will be no harm or destruction. That in the life of the future, you and I will live in complete harmony, complete flourishing in our connection with one another. Jonathan Edwards, who was a minister in New England in the 1700s, describes this flourishing life of the future in a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. He describes it as the blessed society. And listen to how he describes the connection that people in this renewed world will have. He says, heavenly lovers will have no doubt of the love of each other. They shall have no fear that the declarations and professions of love are hypocritical. But they shall be perfectly satisfied in the sincerity and the strength of each other's affection as much as if it were a window in every breast so that every heart could be seen. 
It will not be as in this world, where comparatively few things are as they seem to be, and where professions are often made lightly and without meaning, but there every expression of love shall come from the bottom of the heart, and all that is professed shall be really true and felt. So there shall be no such thing as unfaithfulness in heaven to disturb the friendship of that blessed society. And they shall have no jealousy of one another, but they shall know that by divine grace, the mutual love that exceeds between them will never decay or change. I mean, what Edwards is talking about here is the same thing Isaiah is talking about. A world so welded together by this indestructible love that there's no more fights like the one you had with your wife last week. There's no more racism at your office where there's no more abuse like there was in the home you grew up in. Whereas he says in the end of 25, they will, they will neither harm nor destroy on all God's holy mountain, which is a poetic way of saying that all this flourishing life will be possible because now God's presence has come down to earth. And when God comes down to earth, his posture will be love. And if you're a Christian, he will erase the strife that you have between you and the people you know and love and between you and God. First, a renewed world. The second picture of the future is this flourishing life. And it's this vision of a flourishing life that is also incredibly important for shaping the hope that you and I have. See, in one sense, we can fall into this misplaced hope of escapism. I just got to get out of whatever is causing me problems. But in another sense, we can fall, on the other hand, into this misplaced hope of optimism. And here's what I mean by that. We can place our hope in human progress to bring us this ideal life of the future. And in one sense, Christianity agrees with some of that. You know, ancient religions, they taught that history was just cyclical. But Christianity taught, no, history is progressive. We are moving toward some definite better future. But there's been, throughout the history of the West, particularly here in America, we've changed what that future looks like and how we're going to get there. And there's been three really important shifts in the history of West and Europe and here in America that have led to that. All right, so first, Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. At that time, the Roman Catholic understanding of society in Europe was that there was two different classes of people. All right, so you had the clergy, which were this elevated, spiritual group of people, and then you had the common folk down here, which was everyone else. And in the Protestant Reformation, they completely destroyed that idea. And actually, the reformers brought the common folk up to the level of the clergy and said, no, 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 we're all on the same page here. And that was good. And then shortly after that, in the 1700s, you had the Enlightenment, where now faith was replaced with reason. Dependency on God was replaced with dependency on man. And then shortly after that, we had Romanticism in the 1800s where reason was replaced with desire. The needs of the society was replaced with the needs of the individual. And all of this has just been pushing forward and building up to bring us to where we are today in our culture here in America, 
where we have completely changed what the future is that we're working towards and how we will get there. So first, we've changed from working towards this flourishing life to now a personal utopia. In other words, the vision of the future that we as a society are working towards, it's not the blessed society of Isaiah 65. Instead, it's this future where my own wants and desires are being satisfied endlessly. And secondly, we've changed how we'll get there because we've swapped out the main character in the story from God to people. And yet the ironic thing is this optimism in human progress is destroying the three parts of our world that Isaiah says will flourish in this new life to come. Nature, we're destroying nature through our misguided use of good things like technology and science. Culture, we're fragmenting as a society as we lose the ability to love and sacrifice for each other, all as we push further towards this vision of a personal utopia that globally only a handful of people will actually be able to afford. And then people. I mean, as a culture today in America, we are more anxious and unhappy and depressed than ever before. The CDC has reported that for the third year in a row, the life expectancy in America has declined. That hasn't happened in over a century. And this is something that people who study culture use as a benchmark to define the health of a society. In other words, the system of optimism and human progress, it's not working. I mean, ask yourself, are you happy? Are you flourishing? You see, what we need in our culture, what we need to see is this flourishing life that Isaiah is describing for us here. Because in it, we see that the hope of Christianity, it's not this personal utopia coming from this optimistic hope in human progress. Instead, it is a flourishing life coming from the presence of God and love now being here on this world. A renewed world a flourishing life. If this is what the future of the Bible is, then how can we be in it? And to answer that, we've got to see the third and the final picture here, the future that Isaiah shows us, the gift of the future. You see, the final picture of the future that this passage is pointing us to, it goes beyond Isaiah, beyond the people even in the future that he was prophesying to, and to Jesus through whom you and I receive this future as a gift. If you were to flip forward in your Bible to the book of Revelation, God speaks through another prophecy, this time the Apostle John. And in it, in Revelation 21, John gives us this vision of the future. And this is how he describes it. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away see the picture 
that John's describing here is the exact same one that Isaiah was prophesying about centuries before. But in John's picture, the lens focuses a little more and we can see who makes this future possible. When in verse 5, he says, Then I saw he who was seated on the throne, Jesus, saying, Behold, I am making everything new. A renewed world, a flourishing life, all because at the end of time, Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, his posture will be one of love. And if you are a Christian, he will finally fulfill the promised future that we are all longing for. And yet for you and I to enjoy the future Jesus has to offer, we need to first face the problem that he came to solve. See, this future Isaiah is describing here, it won't be the future of everyone. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this future of a renewed world and a flourishing life is the result of first having a restored relationship with God. That in order for this future that Isaiah is describing here to be our future, we need to admit that unlike the hope of secular optimism, I'm the problem. I have a problem. Me, Eric, I have a sin problem deep inside of me, and because of that, I don't deserve flourishing life in the renewed world. Instead, I deserve the eternal torment of hell. And unlike the narrative and hope of moralistic escapism, we have to admit there's nothing I can do to get myself out of this. There's no amount of religious or spiritual good things I could do to earn the future that Jesus has to offer. My only hope is that Jesus can earn it for me and that he loves me enough then to give it to me as a gift. And that's what Jesus does. Through his death on the cross, he gave up every ounce of flourishing he could ever experience and instead endured the absolute torment of hell for you. Dying for your sin on the cross to replace our broken relationship with God so that now through faith in his free gift you can be assured that the future of Isaiah will be your future too. He gave the most costly thing he ever could. He gave himself so that now you could be with him forever. You see the true gift of the future it's the giver. The true, ultimate gift of the future, it's not a renewed world, it's not a flourishing life, it's Jesus. This is the gift of the future, a loving Savior. And it's this gift that gives you a hope that can face anything. You remember where we started? Your vision of the future, it shapes the way you live right now, and the hope that you have, Isaiah knows that too. And he's using this picture of the future to try and shape the Israelites who are going to come back from the exile to have hope in the rubble that they're about to walk into. Because see, the scene that they're going to come to, it's pretty bleak. After being in exile for 70 years, 
They come back, and their home has been completely destroyed. Their country, their people, their story is now all rubble. And what Isaiah is asking them to do in that moment is not to be optimist. It's not to be escapist. But instead, to put their faith in the promise of God that this isn't the end of the story. So what's the rubble you're standing in? See, it's the same invitation Isaiah is extending to you today. That in the rubble of your failing marriage, failing career, your failing finances, your failing health, your strained relationship with your family, your struggle to have children, the abuse you suffered as a child, your depression, your anxiety, your loneliness, the rubble that we all stand in somewhere, Isaiah is giving us hope to not put it in this secular optimism or this moralistic escapism, but instead to put our hope in Jesus that through him, whatever you're facing right now, it won't be the end of the story. That there is a renewed world and a flourishing life and a loving savior coming at the end of time. And today, how much more should we be people who hope in the rubble? Because you see, we have something Isaiah didn't. We don't just have the future here in words. We have it in flesh and blood. That in his resurrection, Jesus rose, defeating sin, defeating death, and rising, resurrecting in a body of spiritual and physical perfection to start a new humanity and a new hope that through faith in Jesus, his resurrected life will be your resurrected life. A renewed world, a flourishing life, and a loving Savior. If you're a Christian today, this is your hope, and it'll never fail you. And if you're not a Christian, it can be your hope right now through the empty hands of faith. We're going to spend some time now. Let's sit in silence and meditate on this word. I'll pray for us, and then we're going to spend some time responding to this promise. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible picture of the future that you give us, that whatever we're facing right now, it doesn't have to be the end of the story. We have this promise through Jesus of a renewed world and a flourishing life and a loving Savior. Pray, Father, that you would press the hope of your word deep into our hearts right now, that we would know it and experience it in a new way. Amen.